Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk podcast, a Center for Human Rights podcast series, hosted by Victoria Amechi. Hi, Lizzie. How are you feeling this morning? Well, it just started raining. Thank God for that. Um, but it's generally pretty nice uh, this time of year. Um, thank you so much for having me. I've been a long-time admirer of the podcast and the work that the center does when it comes to general human rights questions and especially ecology questions. So I'm so very happy to be here today. Can you please introduce yourself and the nature of work that you do? So my name is Lizzie Mutoni. I am a lawyer and a researcher based in Kenya. And my work basically uh, centers around the intersection of law and society, what basically you know as socio-legal studies. And that encompasses, well, a lot of things. Part of it uh, for a while now has been uh, LGBT rights and how they meet at the intersection of law and the social, uh, the society. My other work includes um, a study of the, the public life of courts, um, as well as the public lives of international organizations. So my current project, for instance, focuses on the public life of the Commonwealth organization. So yeah, that's basically what I do. Kenya records victory last month as the Supreme Court allows registration of LGBTI organizations written in favor of the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission on the 24th of last month, citing that it must be allowed to register as a non-governmental organization as refusal denies the constitutional right to associate based on sexual orientation. So we call this Kenyan decision or Kenyan, the Kenyan courts brave in this decision. And what is the scope of this ruling? So um, it is definitely bravery on the part of the court to be the highest court on the land and to and to declare that just because of someone's sexual orientation or gender identity that it does not deprive them of human rights is extremely brave in a country that for a long time its leaders have stood very, very clearly and adequately on the side of saying that homosexuality is not African and it doesn't belong in this country and we will stamp it out uh, at whatever cost. And indeed, after the weeks that followed the decision, we got a lot of the same comments from leaders across the political aisle. That's actually the funny thing that all the political leaders on both the winners and the losers of last year's election could agree on this one thing, although they don't agree on pretty much any other thing. And the president himself categorically said that he, not under his schedule, will homosexuality be legal in this country. And so within that context and within that clear hostility on the part of the government, then the court's decision is definitely uh, to be seen as brave. On the other hand, though, if you look at the decision within the context of the Kenyan judiciary and what it has been since the promulgation of the new constitution in 2010, it's um, very much in line with what the judiciary has been doing. Uh, last year, the judiciary was asked once again, as it was in the previous election, to declare whether or not the elections were conducted constitutionally. And it's applied itself to the task, and this time found that the elections were done constitutionally. In the previous election cycle, it had annulled elections, something that, in all honesty, is unheard of in not just Africa, but a lot of the world. For Supreme Court to say, no, go back to the ballot and do it again properly. And only then will we call this the will of the people. And so 
it's very unique in the sense that the Supreme Court has been there before. And not just that, but also that the judiciary as a whole has been at the forefront of protecting constitutional rights. And it's said over and over again that, that the judiciary is the vanguard when it comes to enforcing the Constitution. And so they have not been shy to, um, to declare laws unconstitutional, to declare government actions unconstitutional, and to tell them, no, you have to meet the master of the law. So within this context, it is not surprising that the judiciary would choose to read this question as a question of constitutional rights and statutory constitutional responsibility of the government rather than as a purely social issue. At the same time, if you also look at other decisions that came out of the Supreme Court within this same period, you have other decisions that are equally as as progressive. So, for instance, um, there's one particular case that came out recently that concerns the property rights of married persons. And in this particular decision, the court says acknowledges that in this day and age, people should not be forced to register marriages and uh, so that they can have property rights at the moment of dissolution. That to do that is to act without due regard to the reality of the, of, of the times we live in. And in a similar vein, in this particular case of the legal hacks registration, it also talks about um, that kind of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation as being retro so there's a sense in which the court wants to create decisions and create law for the time that it is in. And it makes a lot of sense within the history that I've described of how the Kenyan judiciary came to be. A lot of times for people on the outside, for people who have not been keeping up with the judiciary and also within the larger social context of the fight for LGBT rights. But if you look at it from the perspective, of, from the context of the history of the courts and of the constitutional, of our new constitutional regime, pretty much fits the trend. And it's not too surprising to any constitutional lawyer in the country. They might disagree with it, but it's not surprising. As to the question of the scope of it, one thing that the court did in this case was to emphasize over and over again, again, in line with the, with the insistence on constitutional readings rather than activist or social readings, that what it was doing was declaring the particular act of a government institution, the NGO Coordination Board, as unconstitutional when it comes to registering the, the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. It was very categorical that it was not pushing itself to the other end of saying that no, these laws are unconstitutional. No, they were very clear and they acknowledged that there is currently a case in the Court of Appeal that seeks to decriminalize, um, to repeal the anti-sodomy laws in the penal code. So they were very categorical about that. And so a lot of the scope of this case has to do with, well, from a very purely legal point of view, has to do with the definition of sex uh, and uh, our anti-discrimination clause, that is Article 27.4 of the Constitution. And it has to do with the definition of sex and whether it includes sexual orientation, which was one of the big contestations and one of the legal arguments that has been all the rage since, since the decision came out, the point of contention, does sex include sexual orientation or does sex include the Fact, the biological fact of being either male or female. At the same time, and in my opinion, a missed opportunity was to run away from the question of sex and the definition of it and find the anti-discrimination clause that says that the grounds listed are including those listed but not limited to them. So instead of adding a new ground and saying sex and sexual orientation, the court read into sex as to mean sexual orientation. But so that means we do not have a new 
new ground of sexual orientation. That's the scope of it. That the definition of what kind of um, what kind of characteristics are protected under the anti-discrimination clause. That was basically the, the, the crux of the argument in the case. LGBTI groups in many African countries face persecution. Countries like Ghana, Uganda, Nigeria, creating various obstacles to prevent registration of these LGBTI organizations, even awarding penalties and punishment against such organizations. What significance does this victory in Kenya pose to this country? I think that when it comes to comparing between um, Kenya and other African countries uh, is where my socio-legal heart comes and um, insists that context is everything for these different um, for different countries. Different countries have different contexts, different histories, different uh, political interests and climate. So for instance, as Ayodele Shoguru is going to describe Nigeria's history of military rule and the capacity of the regime to use the law towards its own interests against anybody. It's just that the gays happen to be the ones on the chopping table today. Influences a lot of how the regime uses political homophobia to fuel its own. On the other hand, you have a country such as Uganda, which has had one ruler for pretty much my entire lifetime and then some. And so the political considerations in Nigeria when employing homophobia and in Uganda will be different. And so in that very popular documentary now, uh, God Loves Uganda, and in a lot more discussions that have been had regarding the status of LGBT rights in Uganda, it is clear that, for instance, the attempt at criminalizing further homosexuality in Uganda that preceded Obama's coming was a political tactic then. And so everything has a lot of context. And so if I would even introduce a new country other than the ones you've spoken about, Cameroon has its own interesting history of using political homophobia and even the language that is used to describe to describe homosexuality it's it's very contextual it speaks to that particular people and that society and then in the midst of all this you have Ghana's recent attempt at the promotion of proper human sexual rights and Ghanaian family values which is in all honesty very laughable in the way it is framed in that it talks about LGBTQIAP+. There's no sense of what exactly it's trying to achieve. It's very full of peer-mongering. And that context is informed by its own international interests that have been poured into the Ghanaian, into the Ghanaian political scene and what they are trying to achieve. And so when it comes to Kenya, for instance, our little well, not so little, an encounter with American evangelicals and their interest in stopping homosexuality in Kenya comes all the way from the constitutional um, the constitutional making process where they really drove that as a thing, as, as an issue and how we ended up with Article 45 of the Constitution which speaks to marriage, which says that marriage is only between two people of uh, the opposite sex, so a man and a woman. And they still continue to influence to today's, uh, today's uh, politics when it comes to LGBT rights. For instance, one of the main appellants were represented by the Kenya Christian Professionals Association uh, Forum, Kenyan Christian Professionals Forum, which is funded by outside uh, an American money and has been keen to drive the anti-homosexuality agenda in Kenya very explicitly, both in this case and in the in the different in the case on re repealing the anti-sodomy laws in Kenya. And so I think all this is to say that the contexts are different. 
and it's yet to be seen how one affects the other. While there can be comparisons made, the contexts have to speak to themselves. So, for instance, in Kenya, because of how our judiciary is structured, this is a really good decision on the face of it. But should you put that in a country such as um, Nigeria, I'm not sure whether they would make such a decision. I'm not sure whether their parliament, the recently elected ones, are to be moved by what the Kenyan the Kenyan people thought about this or the Kenyan judiciary thought about this. So I think biggest influence that this ruling has is not so much within the halls of power, but for the individuals, for the individuals in these communities who see that progress elsewhere is possible and get and have an injection of hope that it is happening elsewhere, it could as well happen here. And for instance, I can recall the air in Kenya when the Botswana decision came out and when you hear Namibia has made these this progressive changes, it's always refreshing. You, you get the feeling of it's not all for nothing, that after a long, long, long fight, there might be some hope to this long fight. So I think the biggest contribution this decision will have is for those people fighting for their right to live a dignified life, that they will see it's possible to do it, and not so much that this decision will influence these states to change their approach. What do you think primarily drives this opposition to queer identities in Kenya? Does it boil down to discrimination or fear, or the Kenyan people are just uncomfortable with gay people? Well, I have a lot to say about that one. I think the thing that I, I personally, and for my research, think drives homophobia in general, not just in Kenya, but all over the world, are two things, ignorance and fear. People don't know gay people. They mostly know the concept of homosexuality. And as we say it in Kenya, of gayism. And because they don't know people, as human beings, then they are afraid of them because then the next step is where do they get their information about this concept? And they get it from people who are primarily interested in instilling fear about about these people who are trying to come and, and ruin our children. And there's a big, big, big faction of them who are very insistent that this is a problem uh, that is going to come and steal our children and they want our societies and break up the family. You don't have someone to compare. I know Lizzie, she's not trying to do this. I know person X, I know person Z, they're just trying to live their lives like every other person. And because of that, then the fear is so easy to instill. One of the things, for instance, we have in this country is filled with a lot of witch trials and witch hunts for lesbians. I went through it when I was in high school. I mean, like our school had a lot of it. And so did my sister's school, who just finished high school the other day. Over and over and over again. It's suspicions. They, are, they call boards of uh, boards of governors meetings. You can imagine a board of governor being board of governors being summoned to school because there was a girl suspected of lesbianism or something. And it's all based on rumors. There is no evidence, no nothing. They are just lists drawn up and suspicions that spread around, and that's enough. And so there's a lot, a lot of fear that goes into this. And the difficulty then is that. The only way to cure ignorance and fear is with knowledge, with a lot of that. These are just people like everybody else. And that requires something really hard for most people to do, which in my opinion is coming out.
coming out and speaking to people and telling them, no, this is not an issue. I am this person. I am gay. I am lesbian. I am bisexual. This is it. This is this is just the regular old me. You know, and that, in my opinion, has been lacking. So I think the biggest source of homophobia is that ignorance and fear. And when it comes to how to advocate, I don't think there has been a lot of efforts in what the Americans would call changing hearts and minds of going out there and telling people, no, this, this is me, this, this is the person I am. And so, for instance, if I take an interesting example for this one, when the case came out, and of course it went all the way through the news cycles, that, one, that was not a single gay person who appeared on TV and said, no, I'm gay. Here, this is me. Ask me those questions. Let me explain to you what it is like to be myself, not as an issue, but as me. On the, what we actually had were lawyers going to discuss the final point of law. And in all honesty, the general public simply doesn't care. Most of them have not read this decision. And most of them don't care about fine points of law, about, um, say, the, the, that the NGO board might have acted ultra-virus, whether the, the, the appellant, whether the Nigel Hag and Eric Gitari, the, the, the ones who brought the petition, the petitioners, whether they exhausted local remedies. Civilians do not care about any of that. What people had was, oh, the Supreme Court has said homosexuals can be homosexual in this country. The proper response to it from a social perspective would be to say, okay, then let's have that debate. I take your ignorance and I hand you some nugget of knowledge about what it's like to be gay in this country. Yet, I have yet to see that as a strategy or as just one rogue person going on TV and saying that. So I think for as long as we don't tackle ignorance and fear, homophobia will continue to run rampant, irrespective of how many lovely laws we make. We can say Jews in Kenya for LGBT rights have overcome the registration obstacle. What other legal challenges will those LGBT organizations face in the light of Kenya's anti-gay stance? Are these also going to be constitutional? And if they are, will they be overturned by the court as they have done in the case of the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission? And if so, how will the courts think through these arguments? I think when, when it comes to the NGO aspect of, of this case, it's complicated by the social aspect of it. And I personally do not think that the biggest problem these NGOs have was even registration. I think it was a perfect opportunity to take this matter to the court, to force them to say something about uh, what the law is when it comes to discrimination against gay people. It might as well have been unemployment discrimination, I think. When it comes to their registration, Legal Hack has been in operation since 2013. They're still in operation. GALC, now they're no longer an acronym. So it's GALC Plus. Another uh, one of the big um, LGBT organizations in the country has been in operation for, in all honesty, over a few decades now because it started way back in the early 2000s. Another organization, Minority Women in Action, is also active and uh, and working within the country, there's so many organizations that are coming up and being able to do their work. I don't think the biggest issue that NGOs face is from a legal perspective. I think the biggest issue LGBT NGOs face in particular, like a lot of other NGOs in the country, is a question of legitimacy. Whose interests they advance and for who are they speaking? And this, this is one of the things that has been weaponized by the anti-gay lobby in Kenya. The idea that there's so much money and funding in this NGO space for LGBT rights. 
and you find people going to work for these organizations and saying, you know what, I'm homophobic, but they had a job and I went and I worked for them. And so that question of whose interest do these people advance, because a lot of our NGOs are foreign funded. We in Kenya, and I think with a lot of uh, contemporary quote-unquote civil society organizations are not the classical idea from political philosophy of civil society conceptualized as um, myself, say you, Victoria, and a bunch of other people come together and we say, we have this issue, it's important to us, we need to do something about it. And then we use the tools at hand to advance what our particular interest is. And so it's very organic, sort of. What we have on the other hand today and in a lot of countries in the world, in all honesty, is a top-down approach. And even when things are said such as grassroots organizations, it's almost a band-aid to make it seem less removed. So you'll have a grassroots organization that is still being funded by foreigners. And that will always ask the question, okay, who controls what the narrative is if the money is coming from there? Because if I take money out of my paycheck to put it into this cause I care about, to put it into, say, printing T-shirts to fight for a particular cause, Cause, then then I have an interest in how that organization runs. And I have an, in, an interest and I am directly involved in how it runs because I am putting my money where my mouth is. But on the other hand, if people find jobs and get paid to be in these organizations, irrespective of what they're doing, as in irrespective of what cause is, then there's a lot of questions of legitimacy. So I don't think that NGO space in Kenya's, I don't think that LGBT NGOs are having constitutional questions now. I think the biggest issue is to be legitimate, to, to speak for the people and look like they're acting for the Kenyan people. Based on this court ruling, do you think the LGBTI community in Kenya and in Africa at large will prevail despite politics of policing queer bodies in Africa? I think if that came out of this ruling, one of the things that was honestly beautiful to see was it was on everybody's lips. I wake up, go try and take a motorbike to to a different some place, and they would be talking about it. And I think one of, as I said earlier, the problem when it comes with ignorance and fear, then the antidote is first of all coming out of the shadows. The very fact that this case, as well as other things that happened, because there were other factors preceding this case, the murder of um, of a gay uh, activist by what has now been revealed to be his lover, as well as the declarations by the um, Church of England, as well as the papacy regarding this. So there's a lot of that has been happening that brought this to the limelight. The very fact that people are talking about it is progress. I think that spells hope for a future where it's no longer whispered. It's no longer, you can no longer say it is a non-issue, as it has been said in Kenya over and over again. So the very fact that people are talking about it for me, is a sign of hope that this this will be pushed onto people's consciousnesses and people will have discussions about it. On the other hand, I think on the part of activists and uh, and gay rights campaigners, then the journey that lies ahead of them is then to figure out exactly what are we pushing and how are we doing it. So, for instance, there has been a sort of polarization when it comes to the discussion in the public sphere. So you'll have gay rights organizers speaking about protecting your peace and saying 
safe spaces and all of these things and not speaking to the people who are actually on the opposite side. And so there's a need. This momentum is to amount to something. There has to be discussions by the Kenyan people, not by queer people on one hand and everyone else on the other hand, but meeting in the middle, discussing in terms that we can all understand in all honesty. So personally, I'm very opposed to using the word queer because most people don't understand it. But there has to be discussion in the middle, compromises reached about what are we looking for, how are we going to get it, and how do we all live together in this society because we have to. And so I think there's hope, there's momentum. The question remains, how will it be leveraged towards equality? Thank you, Lizzie, for taking time out of your day to have a very important discussion on the future of LGBTI rights in Kenya and Africa at large. It was lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I, 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 I'm I very glad to have been here and I'm, I, I take time again to congratulate you guys for the good work you're doing for human rights on the continent and the world at large. Thank you. Welcome, Chanel. Nice to have you on the podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and the nature of work that you do? Great. Hi, thank you so, so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I'm the I'm a project officer at the SOGI-esque unit. It is the sexual orientation, gender identity and expression and sexual characteristics unit at the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. So the work that we do is mainly advocacy and research-based work. So around advocacy, we work at a domestic level in South Africa, and then we also participate on a regional level, for example, in the African Commission. And we also perform research that we then present at the African Commission. Um, For example, last year we presented a report on the decriminalization, of course, homosexuality, but also presented a report concerning conversion practices in Africa and steps that states can take to limit or eliminate conversion practices, um, which was well received by the African Commission, as well as presenting reports such as on the state of intersex people in Africa. For the next couple of months, we are focusing on advocacy in South Africa in terms of accessing equality courts and how LGBT people can really use the courts and the law in order to achieve justice. The Supreme Court of Kenya recently ruled in favor of the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, granting them the right to register the organization as a non-governmental organization, citing their right, the fundamental constitutional right to association and not be discriminated based on sexual orientation. This court really comes in the wake of the African Commission refusing to grant observer status to these non-governmental organizations. Alternative Côte d'Ivoire, Human Rights First Rwanda, Synergia, the Initiatives for Human Rights, citing that sexual orientation is not expressly recognized or protected in the African Charter and that is contrary to African values. What do you think of this comment? Does the African Charter need amendments to expressly recognize or protect sexual orientation or is it just another interpretation of poor taste? Right, I think that is pretty interesting and it seems quite contradictory, right, when we actually look at Resolution 275 that was passed by the African Commission that speaks to the protection of LGBTI people 
people in Africa and also calls upon states to take steps towards allowing LGBTI people to be recognized as equal in terms of things such as even the right to life because in many of these countries LGBTI people are executed they're sentenced to imprisonment for very long periods of time even people who aren't LGBTI can be sentenced um, based on imputed sexual orientation or gender identity or even things such as aiding and abetting someone who's LGBTI so it's quite contradictory I would think that the African Commission refused to grant the observer status one of their reasonings that they provided and that the council as well in the Kenyan case cited as a reason why the organization shouldn't be allowed to register is that it is not African values it's not in line with African virtues um, which I think is also very contradictory because when we look back at history we can see such a long and rich history of diverse sexual orientations and gender identities in Africa like right throughout Africa and it's incredible some of it has even continued to survive unfortunately a lot of it was suppressed by colonial powers and where we see things such as pushes for decolonization a lot of African states continue to uphold actually colonial ideas and colonial legacies and they protected really aggressively which is also strange when we're trying to cultivate this sort of cohesive African identity and have values such as Ubuntu but then they will say that it's contrary to African virtues. I think that the African Charter doesn't necessarily expressly say that we should have protections on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, however, it does say on other bases. And previously, in a case such as in Zimbabwe, I think Human Rights NGO Forum versus Zimbabwe, the African Commission even said that they interpreted other status to include sexual orientation. They said Article 2 applies to everyone, including on the grounds of sex, gender, etc., and sexual orientation. So that's another element of the, the way that they're actually being quite a bit contradictory in this in this sense but we've also seen them still be very progressive and have this great chance to show the progressiveness um, of the commission so I'm not too sure if even an amendment would, would help or if maybe they would make them statements or do things such as not admit um, NGOs LGBTI NGOs so I'm not too sure if it would even be helpful at this stage. You mentioned the Resolution 275 passed by the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, which suggested to the member states to create conducive environments for human rights defenders working on the LGBTI issues. Do we acknowledge that the Resolution 275 may have had the impact in the protection and advocacy for rights of all persons in Kenya, especially LGBTI persons? Is Kenya simply just obliged to the Resolution 275 obligations and recommendations, or there's an impact also of the constitutional interpretation of the Bill of Rights? I think that's a very interesting question because it's so hard to directly measure the impacts of things such as legal instruments um, where they're not directly referred to because I believe in the judgments resolution 275 was not really referred to um, and perhaps that was a strategic sort of reasoning for it. I think that resolution 275 has had effect throughout Africa and when we look at things such as countries that have decriminalized homosexual since Resolution 275 was passed, it is quite quite a few. I think perhaps even um, about five, six, seven countries. So one could probably have space to argue that maybe because of their peers, their countries around them having decriminalized it, it would impact Kenya. But when I was chatting a little bit with some Kenyans and asking them about this issue, what they were telling me was that, in fact, in Kenya, they 
are very open in some communities about LGBTI people, just acknowledge that they exist and they're around. And there's a prevalence of um, LGBTI celebrities that everyone knows about. People might not come out and perhaps talk about it directly and say, I'm gay, because of course there's that fear of persecution. But a lot of the, the things that they do and people that they show on their Instagrams or on Twitter, it's quite clear that you can infer their identity through those. I am not too sure if, if Kenya is simply obliging or maybe if the court acknowledges and realizes that within Kenya, there's a lot of people coming out as being LGBT and they are choosing to reflect the, the society that they are seeing. Um, but I do think at least a little bit, I think Resolution 275 has been quite important and instrumental and in at least changing many countries around them. And I think in international law and international communities, we can't downplay the effects of international sort of pressure and trying to be in line as well with your peers in the community. Thank you, Chanel, for that response. The current executive director of the National Gay Lesbian Human Rights Commission described the Supreme Court's decision to uphold the lower court's ruling as one of triumph for justice and human rights. Do you have the same sentiments about this decision? Uh, <laughs> I think I think one could probably guess, but yeah, yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it's fantastic that Kenya in East Africa is making this this decision. I feel as if they're probably paving the way really for other countries in Africa to confront these really difficult topics because Kenya being a country that is quite religious, um, I understand their constitution says they don't have a state religion, but I believe more than the majority of Kenyans are Christians. For them to confront this head on, I think that's great. Um, I think that that can in the future really make a difference in terms of setting precedent and perhaps being referred to, such as even in Botswana um, with the Legabibo case, They've set such an incredible precedent that other countries in Africa can rely on. So I think it's definitely a triumph for justice and human rights. I think the only thing that's a little bit problematic or could be a problem is how it is being received on the ground. Because it's one thing to have these great laws that protect people or start is the beginning to acknowledge the equality of LGBTI people, but it's another thing if on the ground people are being attacked and persecuted in their communities. And I believe that with the comments that were by the president and in parliament, it's sort of stoking this, this fire of um, homophobia and LGBT phobia in Kenya. And that's really unfortunate. And then that kind of speaks further to this question, right, of you you can achieve this justice in the courts but at what what cost to people on the ground and that's the only thing i think is a bit of a a bit of a problem but in terms of the law and setting the precedent i think it's really commendable of kenya to and the kenyan supreme court to have made this decision we can say that ngos in kenya NGOs for LGBT rights have overcome the registration obstacle to access benefits of having an organization. What other legal challenges do you think LGBT organizations 
continue to face or will continue to face in the light of Kenya's anti-gay stance. Are these challenges still constitutional and will they be overturned by the courts as they have done in the case of the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission? And how will the courts think through these arguments if ever presented by these NGOs? Yes, so oof, I think this is the first step in a really long legal battle that probably is to come, um, that I hope is to come. Um, so I think that with the interpretation, so with the court case that had happened, it was on the grounds of freedom of association and then also on the ground of non-discrimination. And in this case, the Kenyan court read into their constitution that sex extends to sexual orientation. So they didn't specifically have the ground of sexual orientation for non-discrimination. So they had to kind of read it in. And I believe with Kenya, they also don't have a and other status sort of tacked on to that to that clause, but rather it has been interpreted in the past that because it says including comma such as comma that means that it's a non-exhaustive list so because they read in sexual orientation and they looked at international cases such as the tunin case from australia i think that in the future now that has created quite a powerful precedent for any future constitutional challenges i think that now this has created a very powerful precedent that now when people perhaps bring cases over and they say, well, I was discriminated against in terms of being able to get a marriage certificate based on my sex, which has been interpreted to include sexual orientation, I think that's going to provide a basis that either the Supreme Court needs to backtrack and say, oh, actually, we're not going to read in sexual orientation, or they really need to stick to their guns then and say, oh, well, we did sort of say this before. We did include this before, so now we're going to have to adjudicate on that. And that's going to be very, very difficult, as I said before, with the religion um, aspect of it. Because unfortunately, it's it's a very contentious and very sensitive topic when we start to discuss religion. And I think a lot of people want to shy away from it, which is fair because you know we want to keep conversations respectful. But... It's something that's going to need to be addressed at some point. Um, we need to somehow find a way around it, like the South African government did in terms of then not having LGBT or, or same-sex marriages under the Marriages Act, but they just rather made a civil union act to circumvent it. Um, they could perhaps find ways around it like that. But I think in the end, the Kenyan court is going to have to deal with many more challenges to their constitution now that they read in sexual orientation and on the grounds of sex. So I think it's going to be really interesting what happens and when these challenges are going to be brought forward. I'm not too sure if there's any maybe in the pipeline, such as now they might think, okay, all systems go, let's go <laughs> for strategic litigation. Um, but yeah, I think in the future, we're definitely going to see constitutional challenges and I think they'll be fair based on this precedent that was previously set unless it goes into the real nitty-gritty procedure administrative law parts of the Kenyan law and Kenyan constitution. Do you have any concluding remarks based on this decision, the future, you know, the tools for the warfare against LGBTI persons? What do you have as a conclusion based on this turnout of events? All right, so 
I think the first thing that's really important is to commend the Kenyan Supreme Court for their decision that knowing there's so much pressure from many politicians who are in very religious parties as well as the general well it seems like the loudest voices in society rather let me say seem to be kind of pushing this it is not African rhetoric it's against religious values rhetoric despite all of this they really put ahead I think the fact that the law is neutral and the law looks at what is just so the law is a balancing exercise and the fact that they also understand that around them the world is changing that these countries around them previously maybe thought that they would never allow even same-sex marriage they're allowing it now i think it's really commendable that they're looking around it and saying the world is changing so we need to also adapt um it would be wonderful in the future to see the decriminalization because I think that will have many knock-on effects that would be wonderful, including things such as more acknowledgement and rights for intersex persons, uh, confronting conversion practices, which are very prevalent throughout Africa and which can be basically put on the same level of torture. I think that the future is going to be very interesting in the Kenyan legal space in these challenges. When we make these sorts of changes, it cannot just happen at a legislative level, but there needs to be changes also in the hearts and the minds of people, because it's one thing for the law to be passed, but then people are still persecuted. They still face a lot of discrimination. Um, and in many cases, people don't want to litigate on it. So they just sort of think okay i just need to deal with this and that's not fair and then in some cases people are murdered um and they perhaps can't have their murder exactly linked to the ground that perhaps they were gay or they were intersex or trans so there really needs to be meaningful engagement with also society things such as education initiatives um which is what we try to do here as well i mean in south africa we've had it We've had homosexuality decriminalized since before apartheid ended. Um, and we've had same-sex marriage and we've got very progressive laws, but we still see on the ground that like a lot of people are persecuted, that a lot of people are still scared to say if they're LGBT or not. Um, especially more so, I think, for like intersex folks and trans folks. So with Africa in general, I think we need to have a very structured and specific approach to how we're going to go forward and teach people about LGBTI folks and make sure it's catered to specific communities because it's so wonderful that Africa is so rich with different identities but then it, it becomes a little bit difficult when approaching communities but we'll find a way so I think people need to also make sure that they first put their safety ahead of the like in the forefront because it is a very dangerous ground battleground if i put it that way um to be to be fighting in for their identities because the risk of of even being killed is is very high but that being said i still think it's it's really wonderful these developments um and i really look forward to the future of seeing how people come up with really creative ways to also strategically litigate 
yeah, looking forward to the future of it, but I think we still have a really long way to go. Thank you, Chanel. It was really lovely to have you. Thank you. Great. Thank you so, so much as well for providing a space for us to have these conversations and discuss like the intersectionality of everything and all of that. Thank you. You just listened to Africa Rights Talk Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. 